Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Political Rewind. It's Thursday, March 18th. I'm Bill Nygut. Um, once again, Georgia finds itself today in the national headlines. We seem to uh, be there almost constantly now for a variety of reasons, this time for a tragic reason, of course, uh, and that is the shooting deaths of eight people, six of whom were Asian Americans in the uh, shootings in Cherokee County and Atlanta that shocked uh, the entire country. Uh, and, and it did so because it raises the issue that Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders have been talking about for some time now, which is they're feeling uh, that uh, the country has to pay more attention to the fact that they are the victims of increasing violence and uh, bigoted behavior, uh, largely because last year President Trump began talking about the Asian virus, the Chinese virus and uh, sparked uh, anti-Asian sentiment as a result of that. Of course, the suspect is now in custody. He says that his shootings um, were not based, according to law enforcement, he says his shootings were not based on anti-Asian violence, but rather that he's got a sex addiction and uh, was targeting people who he believed were tempting him into acts that his Christian faith uh, say are uh, forbidden. Um, but of course, again, you can't talk about this story without talking about what's happening to the way in which Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders are being treated right now. Um, right now, as we go on the air live, um, a delegation of uh, Asian American and Pacific Island uh, state legislators are holding a news conference down at the Capitol. One of them, Representative Sam Park, is going to be with us on Political Rewind uh, for tomorrow's show. So we're going to talk a lot about what's happening with that story. But because we're really fortunate to have with us today the governor's communications director, Cody Hall, who hasn't been on the show for far too long, the panel's also going to get a chance to uh, ask Cody and discuss questions that have been revolving around the governor from, for some time now, including COVID relief, the COVID relief bill, how we're doing on vaccinating people, the election bills in the legislature, and much more. All that said, let's get to the panel. It's Thursday, which means the editor, the boss himself of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Kevin Riley, is with us. Good morning, Kevin. How are you? Good morning, Bill. It's really, really good to be with you. And as, as I mentioned to you before we went on the air, I'm actually sitting in my office at the AJC, a place I haven't been for a long time. I have a few things I've got to get, take care of, sort out here. And um, I'm glad to be with you this morning, although uh, this tragic story uh, that we continue to report on and everyone's trying to somehow process and make sense of uh, really casts a pall over, over the day. Yes, it does. By the way, I'm sure that the staff at the AJC feels the stability in, of your presence in the office. Thank, they're very grateful that you're there, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> Cody Hall, the governor's <laughs> communication director, is with us. Cody, thank you for being back. We haven't had you on the show in far too long, and it's always a pleasure to welcome you. Absolutely, Bill, and thanks for having me. Sure. 
Uh, Senator Kim Jackson, Democrat from Stone Mountain, is back with us in the middle, or really coming down to the end, Kim Jackson, of a very, very hectic um, and controversial session, yes? That's right. Thanks so much for having me, Bill. I look forward to the conversation. Yeah, Dr. Amy Steigerwald, too, um, who we always love having on the show, political science professor at Georgia State University, back with us. Amy, how are you this morning? Did the storms uh, kind of come hovering over your house? Uh, we, we've had definitely a lot of rain, but thankfully we still have power. So I'm, I'm hoping Good. that we make it through the day there. And, as, and everybody <laughs> else stay safe because there are some big wind advisories yeah. in place. So. Yeah, it's, it's true. Um, Cody, let me start with you. Uh, obviously, one of the big questions that's being asked now, regardless of what the suspect in this case or what law enforcement reports the suspect in the case has said about uh, his not having a not being motivated by uh, anti-Asian sentiment, um, there's a feeling that as this crime is investigated, that uh, a hate crimes charge might very well be justified. Um, what is the governor doing as he thinks? Of, I mean, I, I, I assume the governor's not ready to weigh in on that quite yet. But what sort of evidence is he going to need to move forward to support the notion of a hate crimes uh, charge? Well, I think he would obviously leave it up to the law enforcement officials to decide what they they thought was most appropriate. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not a lawyer, neither is the governor, but very smart attorneys like B.J. Pack, the former U.S. attorney, um, have weighed in publicly and said that based on what he has seen, it, it looks like it could be prosecuted under the hate crimes bill that was signed into law by the governor last year. Um, but I do think, you know, it, it's absolutely horrific. Um, and the governor, both the first lady put out a statement yesterday um, that said as much. Um, you know, I, I think it is a, a testament to our law enforcement community that he was stopped before he got to Florida, where um, he then told them um, he was on his way to do more of these horrific acts. Um, um, he was actually stopped in Crisp County down in Cordial. Um, so he wasn't that far from reaching his destination. Um, so I know the Georgia State troopers that were involved in stopping him, they deserve a lot of credit as well. So, Cody, uh, and then I want to get the rest of the panel involved in this. Um, is it safe to assume that as we watch an incident like this play out, that the governor and your office is glad that the legislature finally was able, after decades of trying, to pass a hate crimes law in uh, the session uh, uh, back a year or so ago? Absolutely. I mean, that was part of the governor's remarks last year when we signed it, that it was it, it was part of um, well, sending a message that our state will not tolerate these kind of horrible acts taking place. Um, but I also think that it's important, you know, um, the governor and Dr. Toomey especially have, have remarked on, especially early on in the pandemic, the need to mind our rhetoric around COVID-19 um, and make sure that we are not targeting specific groups um, or communities across our state um, that have absolutely no connection to this virus, um, especially the AAPI um, community. Um, and we've remarked on that. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's incumbent upon us all that um, we're going to get through this virus and the pandemic together, not by targeting different members of, uh, of any community, especially the Asian community. 
Well, you know, uh, that question about the hate crime, uh, too, it's, I think it's important to make a point. I want to know what some of the other panelists think, in particular, uh, Senator Jackson, about this. But, of course, what we have is a horrific crime. And if we're, you know, the court proceedings and the legal process are in motion, uh, and we'll see how it turns out. But when we have someone who's accused of killing numerous people, and so you might ask, well, okay, the hate crime thing, where does that play in? And um, you know, what will be the result of that? But, but I do think, and we have a story on the front page today that dives into this, you know, experts will tell you it's important for the victims and, and the people who, whose lives are forever altered and, and, and in, you know, you have to hope not destroyed by this, that, that they, they can, you know, feel a sense of a society that cares about the fact that, certain people may be targeted because of who they are. It's, I, I do think that that is an important thing about our state having that law. Kim? Yeah, I, I would agree with that, that um, so much about this hate crimes bill and this now law has been about sending a message to marginalized communities in the state that we stand with you. Uh, and in particular with the A. PI community for so long, I think that people have uh, kind of pretended like hate towards Asians wasn't a thing. And so by charging this as a hate crime, it highlights that the complaints from this community are real and that they've been long lasting, right? Um, you know, as a member of the LGBTQ community, I think it does matter when uh, we have law enforcement, when we have authorities who stand up and say, you know, attacking someone because of their orientation um, is a problem and it's a, it's a heightened crime. And so um, I think that's the symbolism is around that does help people who are in those marginalized communities. Fundamentally, though, it doesn't bring these six or these eight women back, right? Um, and that's, I think, something we're going to have to wrestle with, that hate crimes don't actually stop crimes, um, right? The hate crimes law doesn't stop those crimes. But I do think that it says to members of these communities that we care about you, we value you. And I think that is an important message. Uh, Amy, as I bring you into the conversation, uh, let's listen to what uh, State Representative B. Gwynn said on MSNBC uh, about just what Kim Jackson's talking about. When we talk about this incident as a hate crime, it can't just be exclusive to whether or not the suspect in custody has used Asian slurs, but it is very relevant to history and the current sexualization of Asian women in this country. And so the fact that he did target three businesses that are Asian-owned and six Asian women are dead as a result of this, I think that still merits a hate crime, whether or not he admits it or whether or not he recognizes it to be that way. So, um, Amy, B expands the concerns about this, uh, not just potential for anti-Asian sentiment here, but misogyny um, mm -hmm. as, as another factor uh, in this, the stereotype of Asian women as sexualized uh, people, mm -hmm. um, all of that plays into this, no matter what is ultimately concluded about why this suspect allegedly acted as he did. Yes, and I do think it's actually a really important thing to emphasize that the current hate crime statute in Georgia also lists sex and gender as things that trigger the law. So on some level, there is a bit of a discussion happening, which is, oh, he only targeted a whole bunch of women. No biggie. 
And I realize that I'm saying that very sort of boldly, but at the same time, there really is sort of sometimes this thought of like, oh, targeting women because they are women, right? And particularly in this instance, suggesting that they're not in fact women, they're sex objects and temptations to be removed is somehow not in and of itself a hate crime and targeting a group who doesn't have that protection. And um, it also goes even further that, you know, as the person was saying that, you have a very long history of the federalization of Asian American women, particularly uh, within um, sex crimes, I mean, dating all the way back to the Chinese Exclusion Act, that the one exception with that was bringing over uh, Asian women to serve as um, consorts for people, uh, with the exception in law there, and that continues. Um, and it is difficult in this case to separate out the fact that not only did he target women, which in and of itself is a protected group under the hate crimes law. Um, he very explicitly chose Asian spa parlors to go to, right? They, let, let's be clear, if you, anyone who's driven down Cheshire Bridge knows that there is a plethora of places that could have been chosen. And the ones that were chosen here were those particularly with Asian women. And so it's hard to separate out. It really was an attack on Asian women, but I also think it's really important for us to not sort of minimize what it means to have someone targeting women, right, because of their sex and gender and because of the sort of belief that they weren't really humans to be protected, but rather, in the killer's words, temptations to be removed. So, Cody, uh, adding one more layer to this conversation, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I'm very sorry, the spokesman for the Cherokee County uh, Sheriff's Department, Jay Baker, uh, at a news conference yesterday, uh, made some comments that really uh, uh, caused a stir and offended a great many people in the way he talked about the suspect. Um, let's just play what he said, and then, Cody, I'll ask you to comment on it. Um, when I when we sp I spoke with investigators, they interviewed him this morning, and I, uh, they got that impression that, yes, he, he understood um, the gravity of it, and he was pretty much fed up and kind of at the end of his rope, and, um, and yesterday was a really bad day for him, and this is what he did. So a really bad day for the suspect. We, we add to that the fact that um, a search through uh, Jay Baker's social media shows that at least on one occasion he posted anti-Asian uh, slurs. He had a picture of a T-shirt, uh, which essentially had an offensive comment about the Chinese, the virus from China. Um, Cody? Yeah, obviously, I think that was um, not the best choice of words there. I, I would say I watched the press conference. It was pretty lengthy. Um, I don't know how many times a Cherokee County Sheriff's Department spokesperson has had about 15 to 20 TV cameras in front of them. Um I do want to lend the guy some grace in, 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 that, in that aspect. Um, and I think from my recollection of the press conference, I haven't watched it back, there were multiple questions, half a dozen even, that went at the motive of the suspect who, is, who had been arrested. And I think um, when the spokesperson kept trying to answer the same question the same way and kept getting asked the question from a different angle, I think he chose the wrong words. Um, but again... I've um, read the same media reports about um, some of his social media posts. And look, I, I think going forward, the Cherokee County well, Sheriff's Office should probably um, have a different spokesperson or at least have 
him come up and clarify his remarks. Kim? Sure. I think that absolutely it was a poor choice of words. It was a very problematic choice of words. But I want to go back to this whole notion of somebody having a very bad day. Um, And let's talk about the fact that he, the shooter, purchased his gun on that same very bad day. If we had a waiting period in Georgia um, in which people actually had to sit and think about whether or not they wanted to purchase those guns, um, perhaps tomorrow he would not have had a very bad day and we would still have eight women alive. Um, So I think that that's we need to really begin to um, really deal with and take a deep dive into how this easy access to guns helps uh, play um, into these really mass tragedies, right? Um, If he had had to wait Tomorrow might not have been such a bad day, and uh, he and, and those people may still be alive. You know, I'd like to pick up on something Senator Jackson said there, because as the editor of the newspaper, I, this is something I think about on all of these stories, uh, and they just seem to come more and more often and be more and more tragic. Um, we live in a society where people watch a, a detective show or a crime show, and in an hour, the whole complicated, terrible things that happen are all wrapped up neatly. And I think that we all, uh, including those of us in the media, and certainly all of us as citizens, have to, um, I I think the word is patience, recognize that these things, uh, to understand them, to let them change us, to get us all to understand something more deeply, takes time and and it is this is a mess this is a horrible thing with with the, that has happened at, at so many levels and um i think we just have to say well let's let the investigators work let we ought to reflect we you know understand what we can and, and and realize that we're not watching something you know that's like a tv show that uh the script can be manipulated and resolved in such a short time this is a mess and let's learn from it Well, and I think that um, sort of putting everybody's comments together sort of brings up the point of both sort of the complexity of not only what was uh, potentially driving the shooter to engage in this and then how that relates back to society, but also what are the particular issues that we need to be paying attention to and perhaps addressing as we move forward, right, of the types of supports that people are able to get, right, whether um, what this does say about, right, potential, I mean, the ongoing debate that we have at all times about um, gun regulations and the extent or not of that, how that relates to um, particularly uh, access to guns. This is an issue I know that's being debated in Congress under uh, the Violence Against Women Act of sort of prohibitions on the ability to get them for those who have prior charges for either domestic violence uh, or stalking. Um, It also relates in sort of back to where we began, right, this big issue of the targeting of different types of groups simply for being members of those groups and how we as a society respond to that and deal with it and also are willing to discuss it openly. In fact, one of the things I would say that I think is really important is that we're all sort of willing to say like, okay, let's really wrestle with this in ways that I think for years we haven't wanted to. And so that in and of itself is really important, but we can't just use instances like this to propel that conversation. It's one that we need to be having constantly so that we all are thinking about, right, the types of um, 
ways in which we approach situations and recognizing the very unique experiences that everyone brings to the table and how uh, these different events affect them. Yeah, can I Jim, just you know add, what? I, sure. I just, want, just want to add a, a compl- another layer to this. Is we also need to explore the role that Christianity played in this young man's uh, motives and the, the role that perhaps the weaponization of his Christian uh, heritage has uh, really influenced this, but also I, I think overall uh, a failure of religion to really address healthy sexual, sexual identity and sexuality, that that's another layer that we are going to have to explore as we continue to understand this issue. So I'm a little bit, I have to acknowledge that Kim, you probably you make a point that is certainly probably worth exploring. I'm a little nervous about any assumptions we might make in this particular case about the church, although I do think that the parents, who obviously were very deeply involved in their church too, the impact that this had on them was incredibly striking, Kevin. They were the ones who contacted the police when they recognized their own son was the person shown in the surveillance cameras, and they told police there was a tracking device on his car which allowed the police to uh, find him, track him down in South Georgia, as Cody pointed out. So my, my point is, I do an examination of what happens in the way some Christian churches deal with sexuality is probably important. I couldn't help but think that these parents, part of their church and their guide belief, led them to be willing to turn their to, to help police find their son, Kevin. Yeah, in fact, the elders at the we have a story this morning on at AJC.com at the Alfreda Church where apparently the family uh, worshipped. Um, they've issued a statement. To, I, I think they wanted to make clear uh, that uh, they shared in the in the. Um, grief of this horrible incident too. So as we said, I, I think there are just many layers. It, it's a complicated thing and we all, you know, need to be patient. Got to get to a break. Cody, before we take a break, I, you pointed out before that the governor and, and Kathleen Toomey, his public health director, uh, have talked about how um, we, we've got to be careful about how we target individuals or groups of people as we deal with COVID-19. It is interesting to note that just um, about a week or so ago, on March 11th, actually, um, the U.S. House, Grace Meng, who was the first vice chair of the Congressional AAP American Caucus, and Senator Maisie Hirono uh, announced that they were reintroducing a COVID-19 hate crimes act, which they tried to put through a year ago. And the whole concept of that is to address hate and violence targeted toward Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders by providing greater assistance with law enforcement response to COVID-19 hate crimes. I just think, Cody, the timing of that in light of what's happened is particularly noteworthy. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think Kevin and everyone has made the point that this is, um, it's something that we're going to have to altogether recognize as an issue, but also recommit in our, especially from our perspective in the governor's office and, and Dr. Toomey, recommit ourselves to the fact that we're in this together. Um, and I think the, the conversation of why this happened and how to prevent it is, is very important, but I think we also have to um, 
and recommit ourselves to making sure that people that are speaking publicly about the pandemic reemphasize that we are going to get through this together. Um, and that's, you know, every community, not just one or two or three. All right. Uh, Cody Hall gets the last word in this segment. We got a lot more to uh, talk about on the show today. Uh, big things happening in the legislature this week. We'll get to those after our first break. AJC editor uh, Kevin Riley, Professor Amy Steigerwald, Georgia State University, Senator Kim Jackson, Democrat of Stone Mountain, and the governor's communications uh, director, Cody Hall, with us today. Um, Kevin, we want to get Cody to help us with understanding a little better uh, where the governor's office stands on uh, vaccinating people against COVID-19. You know, Kevin, that we've talked on this show on any number of occasions about the fact that the data show that Georgia has fallen behind other states in getting enough shots in arms. Uh, The governor's office pushes back on that and says what really matters is we've gotten shots to the most vulnerable people out there, people ages 65 and over. And, and, you know, there's an interesting comment that you made about the last in the last segment, Kevin, which is um, it's very it's kind of difficult for the media to figure out just what is happening with an issue as complicated. Number one is a virus that's never been seen before with a vaccine uh, supply chain that has problems starting back in the Trump days at the federal level, down to the state level and local levels, how we're communicating the vaccine. This is a much more complicated issue than a soundbite or a headline. But, Kevin, here's one of the comments that the governor made. I believe it was just yesterday. Cody will tell us if I'm wrong. He's, he's now saying we're going to get more vaccine to the areas of the state where there's high Demand That means Metro Atlanta, North Georgia as opposed to South Georgia. And then he said, the media and those playing pandemic politics will continue to focus on whichever statistic of the day paints Georgia in a bad light. But I will tell you, I'm not worried about politics. I'm worried about following the science and the data about who is most vulnerable. And yet, Kevin, we're still not getting enough shots in enough arms. Yeah, I mean, I do think the the good news, of course, is that there's more and more vaccine every day and more and more people eligible for it and more and more people getting shots. But, uh, you know, everyone wants it to happen faster. Uh, I don't know what Cody will say on this, uh, in particular, that line about um, the media will, you know, pick the bad statistics of the, of the day. Um, I, I don't know if he wrote that line for the governor. We'll have to ask him. But that that aside for a moment. <laughs> In a way, the way I feel about that is that's part of our job is like we point out in the media where things are not working and then government reacts to it. I mean, it, I would argue that, OK, that we're all doing our job here and it, that doesn't mean anyone's really happy, but that's sort of how it's going to work. Um, and uh, I do think it's a it's an issue that, that more vaccine was available outside Atlanta than than in a high demand area than Atlanta, and that the governor had no choice but to decide what he wanted to do about that. Um, Cody, even I think I'm correct in saying, I was looking at it right now, even the State Department of Public Health uh, uh, shows us in their reporting that we've had far more doses delivered to the state than have been 
put into arms. I think the percentage of uh, shots in arms compared to supply is like we're at 70 plus percent. Why is there such a lag there? Yeah, I think the last time I looked at the, the website is at 78 percent, so almost eight out of every 10 shots. I think there are a couple of things on the lag there. Um, one is we are credited for shipped shots at the beginning of the week. Um, the State Department of Public Health usually doesn't receive those until Monday night, Tuesday morning, um, and then they have to then ship those to providers. So that's another day or two for that to happen. Um, but look, you add that to the appointment system that we have um, adopted at the state level and at the GEMA sites um, that allows for safety protocols to be followed to make sure that we're not wasting any vaccines. Um, and look, again, I think back to the original point of we have um, vaccinated almost 70 percent of our, our seniors who account for 77 percent of our deaths. Um, we are upwards of 75 percent of those that are 75 and older. Um, so I think, again, when you look at when you have a limited amount of vaccine, um, which we have had up until this week and probably the beginning of the week of the 29th, the goal with that limited amount of vaccine is to prevent severe illness, hospitalization, and death. Um, and our approach, while um, there are some stats and, and websites um, that have us ranked um, in specific metrics, um, again, our approach was to make sure that those folks who are most likely to be hospitalized or die from COVID-19 had every opportunity to get a shot. Um, Cody, am I, am I correct? D did the governor also make a statement, and I read so many different people talking about this, I apologize if I got this wrong, but I think the governor said that he's uh, d concerned about people who may be holding back um, vaccine from from being put into arms because they want to assure second shot supplies is that right and you're gonna yeah. and he's suggested he may withhold some supplies to places that are doing just that right so there's a couple of things there one when allocations were first being made um to a lot of hospitals and and large providers it, 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 they were given the pfizer vaccine um and a lot of those hospitals and large providers first gave doses to their actual patients. Um, and once a lot of those providers started to work through the patients that were actually eligible, our seniors, they started to see a lag in demand. Um, and when you had those storms out in Texas, it delayed some shipments. Um, they got almost three weeks worth of first and second doses all in one glut that they did not necessarily have the demand to get out the door. Um, again, I know this is in the weeds and it's complicated, but um, that is why the governor and Dr. Toomey are, are writing a letter to providers that from now going forward, when you receive your shipment of first doses, 80% of those doses need to be used in the first week um, in order to make sure that if you're a provider and you don't necessarily have the demand load in your current patients that are normally coming into your hospital, that you're partnering with a community leader like a church, a civic club, in order to get those shots in arms. Because a shot or a vaccine in a freezer is not doing anyone any good. The one caveat there is that a lot of these providers have scheduled appointments weeks out, two, three weeks out. And previously, what they were concerned about is that if they got their first doses, they wouldn't receive a second dose or they would have to use those future first dose shipments and split them up. So what we've told them is 
We understand that concern. The amount of supply we're getting is not going to make that a necessary thing for providers to do. We will make sure that you have both enough well, first doses to meet your demand and your second doses. Uh, Amy and then Kim, jump in on this, please. Um, I mean, I think that there's been, right, on the one hand, I think that the state is doing everything it can to be able to get out the doses to everyone. I think on the other hand that there have been um, a lot of issues, right? I mean, one obvious one is, right, doses being sent to places where, unfortunately, people don't want them or you don't have as many people. And so there's sort of a more doses going, let's say, to smaller communities than to Metro Atlanta. And so I know at one point there was sort of a thought of like, hey, go drive where you can go find an appointment. That in this of itself is an issue. I mean, I do have actually colleagues who have driven uh, up to three and four hours uh, each way to be able to go get doses because they weren't able to get them here in the Metro Atlanta area, but they were able to go get them if they drove to uh, South Georgia or something like that. And part of the issue there is that that's putting a huge onus right on people to try to go find them to do this. I think that there's also a broader one. I've, I've brought this up before, but I've sort of watched it happen in real time that getting signing up for the appointment in and of itself is difficult. Um, number one, you have to have access to the internet. And that's a small thing that is actually really, really huge. And we have seen that during sort of this whole pandemic. Um, and you also have to do it at timing. Um, one of the issues that's happening right now is that you, um, most of the providers, right, whether you're doing it through the county health systems or through uh, the local pharmacies, require you to sign up for, uh, to find appointments for both shops now, and they won't let you finish booking the appointment if you can't book both. Uh, you can find first dose appointments, but you can't find second dose appointments. And so therefore people are prevented from being able to sign up, even though they could sign up for the first dose appointment. And so that's also causing issues. And I don't know quite how we solve that, but it's an issue. Yeah, Kim? I think we also, we also really need to address, like, we focus on 65 and older, and uh, that has been important, but also black people in this state have died exponentially, at rates exponentially higher than uh, other folks, and so we need to really prioritize getting vaccines in the arms of black people, um, and some of the ways that we do that means that we have to change how we sign up for vaccines. If it's all through the internet, if it's all dependent on you having access to a laptop and broadband, um, then we know we're leaving people out. And the other piece of this is that we also need to start deploying some mobile vaccination sites two areas that we know has uh, low access to transit um, and access, low access to, to the same broadband thing. So there's, there's some real disparity issues in terms of racial disparity for, you know, early on in DeKalb County, um, we knew that DeKalb County was majority African-American, yet the vast majority of vaccinations went into the arms of white people. Uh, again, because they had that access to internet, they knew how to use it, they knew how to mobilize their all, all their friends to get those vaccines. And so um, we need to put some real focus on making sure we get vaccinations into, into black folks because they are at high risk. Co Co I'm sorry, Kim. Cody, there are states where uh, governors have prioritized uh, minority communities and said what Kim is saying is absolutely correct. We've got to get the people who've been disproportionately impacted by COVID shots. Um, where, are, are, is the governor or Kathleen Toomey, are they looking at just that? Yeah, so a couple of things there. Out of our first 
four mass vaccination sites that were state operated. All of them were in the minority communities, um, whether it was in Clayton County or right, right around the airport, um, Habersham with our Hispanic community, Albany Doherty County, a heavily African American community, um, all of and in Macon Bibb, um, again another heavily African American community. Our our next expansion in Savannah, Columbus, all of those are in heavily African American communities. Um, the one we are absolutely going to move more towards mobile units delivering shots in hard to reach communities. One of the issues that we obviously have run into is that the first two shots that we were provided were two dose shots. And for communities where if it's at a church or um, in a in a community where that population may be transient, it's going to be very difficult for us to then find that exact same person. Um, in the time window in order to get them a second shot. Johnson & Johnson, um, we expect over – I'm not going to break any news, I don't think, but um, over six figures in oh, Johnson & Johnson shots. Oh, go ahead. Break some shots. news. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be expecting over six figures of Johnson & Johnson shots the week of the 29th of March. Um, those shots will be a game changer in terms of being able to deploy guard units or GEMA units that go out into hard-to-reach communities and get that shot. But I do want to say or just clarify that we are – um, in our state-operated shots or sites, excuse me, and in public health um, sites, placing those as much as we can in communities where they don't have to drive as far in order to get a shot. I just want to note right, though Kevin? that that placement. Oh. I just really, really quick. I want to note that those opening of those mass vaccination sites. It's March. We've had access to these shots um, since January, and so given that we knew how many Black people were dying disproportionately, um, that delay in opening these sites in these high minority populations, I think that was a mistake. Uh, and so I just want to raise that that there's been a significant delay in reaching these hard to reach uh, these minority populations. Cody, I got to get to a break, but if you want to, you're welcome to respond. Yeah, I think, again, um, Dr. Toomey and the governor wanted to ensure that when we had a very limited supply, I mean, we started out our first shipment was less than 100,000 doses, and that was going to have to last us for two weeks. When you have that number of doses um, and the supply has not really increased until early March, um, you have to make sure that you are vaccinating those at highest risk of transmission and highest risk of hospitalization or death. And that's exactly what we did. All right. We'll be back with uh, more with our panel after our final break of today's show. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Kevin Riley, I want to, with your help, all of the panel's help, uh, get uh, Cody Hall, governor's communications director, to give us a definitive answer on which election bills Governor Kemp is going to support and which he is not going to support. We're sure he'll do that on the show today. But before we get to that, a point I should have made, a little announcement that we should have made earlier. uh, When President Biden and Vice President Harris come to Georgia uh, tomorrow to uh, promote the COVID-19 relief package, they have announced now They are going to meet with Asian-American leaders in Gwinnett County, which is, of course, important 
uh, if nothing more than symbolically to say that this administration is concerned about what's happening there, and I wanted to mention that. So, uh, Kevin, your reporters today down at the Capitol uh, have a really great little story. It, it, it's a story that reminds us who have been covered the Capitol for decades that you can never um, uh, uh, give a, you've always got to worry about what's going to happen in the last days of a session. Kim Jackson knows that. So yesterday, um, Barry Fleming, Representative Barry Fleming, who's been one of the leaders of the efforts to, uh, to uh, uh, change how Georgians vote by absentee ballot and early voting, introduced a new version of, of a comprehensive election bill, which is apparently dozens and dozens of pages long, something like 93 pages long, Kevin, it adds 50 new sections to the original Senate uh, bill that was passed that had some measures in it that people are very concerned about, like ending no-excuse absentee balloting. And so now, Kevin, um, legislators are going to be faced with uh, uh, this brand-new bill coming in the last, like, seven days of this session. I think it's safe to say that Representative Fleming didn't do this to try to undermine all these election bills, as you suppose the strategy could be, but instead something else. Uh, now, I will take my run and get, get getting Cody to tell us exactly what the governor's thinking, and, and we'll see uh, if he does that. But I think the governor's been clear that he, uh, Cody, help me, he is supportive of the idea of uh, better ID for absentee balloting. And he's been, uh, he's sent a message that he's had is hesitant about anything that would restrict uh, the automatic registration when people get their driver's license. I think those two things. But he has mostly not said much else. Um, so in a bill that includes everything in the kitchen sink for, on these voting things, uh, what, will, what will he think about that? Will that put him in a position to say there's just too many things I don't agree with or there are enough that I yep. do? Most importantly, as I mentioned, what about an end to no excuse uh, absentee voting, an end to Sunday voting, uh, Cody, and limiting the number of early voting days? Yeah, so I think Kevin's right that um, the governor has clearly said that um, he supports strengthening voter ID for absentee balloting, whether that's a state issue ID number. Um, I think most of the bills come at that a variety of different ways. You can have a, a bunch of different options. Um, and and look, um, the governor um, and the House and Senate folks have been talking at length about this. Um, we have had an open line of communication with House and Senate leadership on it. But I would just point to what the governor's record as secretary of state was, and that was to make it easy to vote and hard to cheat. Um, in terms of easy to vote, online voter registration, the motor voter um, update, um, all of those things happened while he was secretary of state. Um, but he also sued the Obama Justice Department to make sure there was a citizenship check before you register to vote. Um, so I think, look, his record speaks for itself in, in the things that he did and did not push for as he was Secretary of State. Um, but look, um, we only have so much say over this process, but there's two weeks to go, and that's an eternity in the General Assembly. So we look forward to working with them on the specifics as it moves forward. 
Yeah, you know, the last time I was on the show, I, I celebrated the governor for doing the right thing when it came to the citizen's arrest uh, bill and and really applauded him for just simply doing the right thing. And so I, I hope that when it comes to making sure that we continue to have great access and easy access to the ballot, um, using the system, the very system that he helped create, that he will stand up and defend that. And so when it comes to eliminating no excuse absentee balloting, um, you know, I, I really hope that the governor will stand up and say that's just not right when it comes to eliminating Sunday voting, uh, which will have disproportionate impact. We talk a lot about souls to the polls as it relates to black people, but we also need to talk about the fact that our ascetic Jews, they use Sunday voting because they can't go vote on Saturday. And so this has great impact on a lot of people. And so I hope that he, again, does the right thing and says, no, we're not going to restrict access to the polls for these communities. Um, so I'm really, I'm counting on the governor to really intervene. I think these bills have gotten out of control. Um, the length of them for, for a system that wasn't broken. You know, I stood in the well several weeks ago and talked about this. The system wasn't broken, but we're trying to do not just tinker with it. Uh, we're actually trying to do a major your overhaul of something that wasn't broken. And so I, I really do hope that the governor will stand up and, and say no. He does have some control. He at least has the power of the veto pen. Amy? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of, you know, sort of issues also of how, right, this particular bill, this omnibus, I mean, it was introduced. Basically, people who showed up at the hearing to testify about the original bill, which was um, – two pages and was simply about sort of third party groups being able to mail out absentee applications. Um, instead, they were told, actually, we're going to discuss a totally different bill that it has 50 sections, to 93 pages long. Oh, and we're going to discuss it starting in 30 minutes, um, which most of the members of the committee didn't even know that that's what was being introduced. And that's also problematic, right? When there's that many provisions of it, some of them which um, have been discussed in other places, some of the which had not been and have very important implications, not only for sort of election administration, but for um, access to voting. And I think that's some of the issue is that some of this also is where there is this concern and sort of what are we focused on? And right, particularly in the governor's words, if our interest is on ensuring safety, but also ensuring access, then there's really a tension in some of these bills. Um, I'll admit, now granted, I have, my, my partisan identity is I'm a political science professor. So admittedly, like, I'm a big fan of voting and democracy, especially in the United States, and so I want people to be able to vote. But I have to admit that I am unclear why we would want to, especially with early voting, which as far as I know, there has not been any concerns raised about people going to a early a person, a, a, early voting, early in-person voting, going to a polling place, why would we want to say, for example, that a county can't keep the polls open for longer hours or do it on different days, especially because some of the problem is that it is not always necessarily easy, in fact, to vote. The reason we worry about access is because people can't get there. Not everyone gets time off of work. You may have to travel to get to your polling place. If you work long hours and you can't make it to the poll, you need a time when you can. And so that's one, I think, in particular, where there's a bit of a, a conjunction between those two. Cody, on um, March 2nd, I think it was. The governor was asked about the various election bills. He said a lot of Georgians have lost confidence. That shouldn't be the case. We need to make sure that all Georgians have faith in the process, Republicans or 
uh, Democrats. Um, would you agree that uh, the biggest reason people have lost faith, your governor was not one of these people, but one of the reasons people have lost faith is a number of Republican leaders in Georgia and across the country who joined uh, Donald Trump in uh, 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 declaring that the presidential election was a fraud in Georgia? I'm not sure, Bill, that I, I make enough to defend the former president on that, on that number, but I will say that um, the governor was very clear about um, his legal authority, what he could and couldn't do. Um, his, his March 2nd comments were um, mostly pointed toward the fact that um, with an incredibly large increase in absentee balloting, I think it was over 1.3 million people voted absentee, this was abnormal for local election officials, and it put a increased burden on them in order to process those ballots on time and correctly. And by going to a stricter voter ID way of, of verifying those ballots, you take out a signature check um, process that could be more subjective and move towards a more objective um, standard that's easier um, to verify for local officials so that we can have more streamlined and more secure elections on the absentee ballot side. Bill, what I would add, what I would add to what Cody's saying, I mean, no matter how you feel about uh, partisan politics or what party you affiliate with, you know, we, we have to give the governor some credit for the positions he took at a, a, a time of, you know, great tension and confusion. And uh, when he did stand up and say, I've got to follow the law and certify this election. I just think uh, some of these guys in the legislature, I mean, they made up stuff, pretended there was a crisis and are are now using the very made up false things they said as the reason for what they want to do. That's just not right. Plain and simple. Um. Cody, uh, an, another comment the governor made, and we're running short of time here, in a recent interview, I think it was on Fox News, he was asked, given that, he's had, that, that, that Donald Trump has really targeted your boss over and over again because the governor stood firm in saying the election in Georgia was honest and, and charges of fraud are false, uh, nevertheless, uh, he was asked whether he would support Donald Trump, if not next in, in four years, if Donald Trump is a nominee, he said absolutely. But he also said it in a somewhat clever way. He said, if Donald Trump is the nominee, of course I will support him. Should we take that uh, as it kind of sounds like it means to be? He's not ready to say he'll support Donald Trump to be the nominee. I think the governor would wait to make that decision until the, the former president announces his intentions. But I I think the governor has been very clear that he thinks that the foreign president did a lot of great things for Georgia and will continue to support those things that uh, move Georgia and the country forward. Cody Hall, thank you for joining us. Also, thanking, thank you for recognizing we are down to the last minute on the show and be, uh, doing such a great job answering that question in a brief <laughs> manner. Thank you, Cody. We enjoyed having you here. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, always a pleasure. Senator Kim Jackson, come back again, too. Um, We've really enjoyed getting you to be part of our Political Rewind uh, family of panelists. So thank you. Kevin Riley, as always, great to see you on this Thursday edition of the show. We'll be back, of course, again tomorrow with another show. As I said, Representative Sam Park will be here. He's part of that news conference going on with Asian American leaders talking about their concerns over these shootings. He'll talk about that on the show tomorrow, along with Tia Mitchell and Patricia Murphy. 
I'm Bill Nygut. Until I see you tomorrow, please take care. Stay healthy. Yes, of course, continue wearing a mask. And I hope Cody Hall is right. You'll soon be able to get your shots. Bye-bye, everybody.